Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17, pausing our study um, in the Gospel of John this morning in light of the officers who are being ordained and installed today, thought it appropriate to consider leadership in the church. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20. And as you turn there, let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank You for Your Word that guides us in all truth, including how You have desired Your church to be governed. We pray, Lord, that You would teach us now from the reading and preaching of Your Word in Deuteronomy 17. We pray that Your Spirit would work in our hearts that our hearts might have ears to hear Your Word and eyes to see Your Word, that it might bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14-20. through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. May God bless the reading of his holy word, and let his church say, Amen. Conventional wisdom is a set of generally accepted opinions and thoughts and philosophy and judgments in our culture about any given topic. They're often expressed in short little pithy sayings like, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, and a penny saved is a penny earned. There you go. Conventional wisdom there for you. These little nuggets of conventional wisdom, they help us in our lives in the way that we make decisions, the ways that we think about our marriages, how we parent our children, where we work in our work ethic, whether we spend or save, they have a big impact on us. 
Conventional wisdom isn't always bad. It can be helpful. Conventional wisdom isn't always good either, though, is it? The Bible warns us about using conventional wisdom and doing what our culture calls us to do and following our hearts and doing what feels and seems right to us. Consider some of the following verses. 1 Corinthians 3.19 The wisdom of this world is folly with God. Proverbs 14.12 There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 28.26 Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but whoever walks in wisdom will be delivered. And of course, Jeremiah 17.9 that wonderful verse that warns us against following our hearts, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have to be careful using conventional wisdom for it is only wisdom when it complies with, is in alignment to, and comports to God's Word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom is found in God's law. Any deviation thereof from God's Word is not wisdom for us to follow. No matter how much the culture tells us that it's wisdom to follow. As Christians, we're called to do as Romans 12.2 commands us, and not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We are not called to blindly accept the conventional wisdom of our culture, but submit everything in our lives to God's holy word that our minds might be transformed, that our minds might be renewed. And as a result, we can discern the will of God that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In this way, the book of Deuteronomy really is Moses' way of telling the Israelites, a new generation of Israelites, as they are making preparation to cross the Jordan River and go into the land of Canaan, it is Moses' way of saying, be careful. Don't follow the conventional wisdom in the land you are inheriting. Don't bow down before their gods. Don't intermarry with them. And as we learn here in Deuteronomy 17, don't have a king like the nations. God's people are to be governed differently from the world. Those decisions are to be made differently, not using the conventional wisdom of the age and of the culture, but choosing leaders and following leaders whom God chooses and those whom align themselves with the law and the Word of God. So I want us to consider this couple of questions this morning as we think about this passage of Scripture in light of those men who are being ordained today. How should leadership in the church differ from leadership in the culture? 
Well, first, I want you to see this passage teaches us as God's people, we are called on to choose the leaders God chooses. That's what we're called to do. We are to choose the leaders God chooses. We are not called to use conventional wisdom alone in making this decision. Notice here in verse 14 that the land of Canaan is promised to the Israelites. They are going to go into it. God is going to give it to them. And then at some point they will say, look at verse 14, I will set a king over me. That's not a bad thing. A king had already been promised to God's people. God promised Abraham and Sarah that kings would come from their heritage. So we know that the kingship had been ordained by God. This desire for a king from the Israelites, it's not going to be a bad desire in and of itself. But where the desire turns to a bad desire is look at verse 14. When they say, I will set a king over me, like what? Or like whom? All the nations that are around me. It is this caution from God's Word to the children of Israel not to be conformed like the nations around them. Not to choose a king like the Canaanites choose rulers over them. No. They are to choose whom? Look at verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you. Who? Which king should they choose? Whom the Lord your God will choose. The one whom is ordained by the Lord to the office of kingship. They are not to choose a king who looks like the kings of the nations around them. They are to choose a king that the Lord appoints. One that the Lord chooses. Not a foreigner. Notice in verse 15. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You're not to have a foreign king. You are to have a king that comes from among your number. And then it's said explicitly there in verse 15. You may not put a foreigner over you. Who is not your brother? Israel could have a king. God had ordained the office of the king. But they were not to choose a king using the conventional wisdom of their culture. They were to choose a king that God had chosen. What's changed when we think about this? We don't have kings in the church, do we? That's not one of the offices that a man can be ordained to. We already have a king, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ is the head and king of the church. In fact, when you read our Constitution, it tells you right up front in the beginning that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the only head of the church. He holds all the titles of the church, all the offices of the church, and He Himself is the King over the church. But because Jesus is the King over the church, because that's been fulfilled in Him, Jesus also gets to choose how He exercises His authority in the church. Consider this in our preliminary principle from the book of church order, number three. I know all of you just read that all the time. You should. It's wonderful reading for you. 
Our blessed Savior for the edification of the visible church, which is His body, has appointed officers. Not only to preach the gospel and administer sacraments, but also to exercise discipline for the preservation both of truth and duty. Christ exercises His kingship in the church through leadership in the church who are ordained in the church. We call them elders and deacons. They are established by God. They are set apart, as we learn in the New Testament, set apart for devotion and service unto the Lord. When you think about that, and you compare that against our modern evangelical church age, hasn't there been a lot of deviation from that? Think about all the deviation that is happening in the church culture today. Pulpits have been exchanged for little tables where pastors don't give sermons, pastors give talks. And the sermons aren't so much an exposition of Scripture as they are life improvement. Pastors, many pastors, no longer consider themselves as men of the clergy who have been set apart and ordained for the exposition of God's Word and for the administration of the sacraments, but pastors have exchanged that identity for life coaches. Think about the ministry that takes place in the church. No longer is worship led by elders in the church, but worship is led by laity in the church. Blurring and confusing the delegation of authority that the Lord has established. It's very common to see as well even the laity administering baptisms. Have you seen that? Have you seen that online? Friends, social media, where their children are being baptized and the parents are administering that baptism. And think about the way that leadership is often chosen in the church. Not for biblical reasons, but for other reasons. Leaders are chosen in the church who have influence and status and prestige. Leaders are chosen in the church for reasons of social justice or affirmative action. Church, the Scripture knows of no such categories for those who serve in God's church. Jesus Christ exercises His authority in the church through the officers that God has given to the church. And it is those whom the elders are called upon to lay their hands on them and ordain them and set those men apart for the work that takes place in the church. It doesn't mean that they do all the work in the church, as I reminded Dave Dumpy this week. Brother, as a deacon, engage the help of the congregation. Don't do all the work yourself. And that's true not only for Dave, for all the men who serve as deacons, as well as those who are elders in the church. God has given gifts in the church. God's given you gifts to serve in the church. But He's also given officers in the church. He's also given elders and deacons to the church. And they are called upon by the Lord to serve in their roles of leadership that the Lord 
has established. And your responsibility as a Christian today is to choose the leaders that God chooses. Secondly, not only do you choose the leaders God chooses, choosing differently, not with conventional wisdom, but choosing those God has chosen. Secondly, you are to follow the leaders who are led by God. So you choose the leaders God chooses, and you follow the leaders who are led by God. Not those who are led by conventional wisdom. I want you to see that in this passage. Look with me at verse 16. Here we see what's the king supposed to be like when he becomes king. Well, he's not to acquire these three many things. He's not to acquire many horses. He's not to acquire many wives. And he's not to acquire many monies. You see that there in the passage. He's not to acquire many horses. He's not to think that the security of his kingdom relies in the strength of his military power. He's not to think that because he has a strong military, he has insulated himself and has set up proper defenses for himself against any foreign invader and therefore he can rule and reign any way that he personally chooses as long as he has a strong military he can defend against any enemy foreign and domestic he's not to trust in that this isn't a prohibition against having an army it's a prohibition against trusting in that army instead of the sovereignty of god furthermore He's not to acquire those horses by trade through Egypt lest they return back to Egypt. God had delivered them from Egypt. Not only is he not to acquire many horses, he's not to acquire many wives. He is to be a one-woman man. He is to live a life of sexual purity and holiness. He's not to acquire like the nations around him, a huge harem of women with whom he can indulge every depravity of his own heart, making an attempt to set himself up in a position of impressive status like the other kings. He's not to do that. He is to follow God's law for purity. Additionally, he is not to have excessive silver or gold. He's not to trust in that. He's not to think that his kingdom will last because of wealth. And he's not to exact that wealth on the backs of the people for those whom he serves. This is all a guard for him, lest his heart be turned away from the Lord. You don't have to think any further than King Solomon, do you? And here you have King Saul, Kingship is taken from him. The Lord chooses King David, a man after his own heart, to serve. And here comes King Solomon, David's son. And he does all these wonderful things in Israel, doesn't he? Builds a city, builds the temple, beautifies the palace. I mean, it is the height of Israel under the leadership of King Solomon. But then what happens? King Solomon does all the things that are prohibited in this passage. He acquires great wealth for himself. Wealth as which 
the ancient Near Eastern world had never seen. He acquired many horses for himself through trade with Egypt, the Scripture tells us. And, of course, the ultimate downfall of King Solomon was what? His harem of wives. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the Scripture tells us that these turned his heart from the Lord. And for these wives, he built high places of idolatry so they might serve their idols, which in turn turned his heart away from pure devotion unto the Lord. There's an interesting website and social media page you should look up after church. Okay, Don't do this right now. If I see you pick up your iPhone, I'm going to confiscate it from you. Preachers in sneakers. You ever heard of that? Preachers in sneakers. This guy, creator of the, of the page, curated videos and photographs of popular, affluent preachers across the country. And he identified the sneakers that they wear and the clothes that they wear. And you say, well, this is really... Interesting, that's kind of weird. Well, when you begin to watch, he compares the price. He identifies the price of the clothing that they wear. Louis Vuitton sneakers for $6,000. A hoodie worn in the pulpit. Shudder the thought. But a hoodie for $1,500. $2,000 Nikes, designer clothing, all this to do what? To look like the culture. The culture says those who are good leaders in the world are those who are affluent. And through that, they are making every effort to look more affluent, for they think that the more affluent that they appear, the better the leader they will be. And the more they will entice people to follow them. Can I tell you? They've enticed millions, haven't they? We're called to choose the leaders God chooses and we are called to follow the leaders who are led by God. Think about the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was humble. He was found in a human form and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was gentle, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He was loving. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He cared for souls, inviting people to take his yoke upon them and learn from him. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He served, didn't he? Although he was a, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though he was a king and could have rightly demanded service, he came to serve others. He persevered in holiness. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was merciful to the outcasts of his society. 
saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Think about the example of the Lord Jesus Christ being so humble that He would be born not only as a man, but in a low estate, taking to Himself the form of a servant, though every spiritual blessing was rightly His as the Son of God. So we're to follow the leaders who are led by God, not those who are led by conventional wisdom, but instead, those who are led by the wisdom of God's Word. I want you to see that in this passage. It's so clear. The king is to be a man of the book, isn't he? His first act that he's to do, verse 18 tells us, is he is to write a copy of the law for himself. And it is to be sanctioned by the priesthood. What's he to do with that copy of the law? Well, he, it shall be with him. What do you mean with him? He's to take it wherever he goes. When he weighs in judgment on a matter, he's to consider what God's Word says. Not only is it to always be with him, he shall read it all the days of his life. Look at that in verse 19. He's always to be reading God's Word. He never gets to a point to where he graduates from God's law. He never graduates. Always going back to God's law. She'll be with him. He's to read it. And he's to be learning to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and statutes and doing them. Having God's law, constantly studying and reading God's law, never graduating from God's law, is to lead the king into a richer devotion and service and worship of Almighty God. He is to have an impeccable orthodoxy and a robust orthopraxy. He is to take his understanding and theology of God that he's learned in his law, and he's apply, he is to apply it to his life. Not only for him personally, but in the way that he rules and judges those whom God has placed under his care. And that is to lead him into a deep, rich adoration and worship of Almighty God. What will this do? Well, it will keep him humble. Look at verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. So important. So important for the... It's easy for the king to think that he gets to a point to where those in his kingdom are his subjects and he can use them and abuse them any way he chooses. But if he meditates on God's law all the days of his life, he won't become proud, will he? He won't be lifted up as above his brothers. It will also keep him on the straight and narrow, won't it? He may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. It will keep him on the path that God has called him. It will keep him from falling into sin is what it will do. And as a result, Look at verse 20. He may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. John Calvin uses three analogies for God's law in the Institutes. He says God's law 
is like a muzzle, a map, and a mirror. God's law is like a muzzle that restrains sin. Even those who are outside of the church who can't tell you the Ten Commandments know that murder is wrong. They know stealing is wrong. They know adultery is wrong. God's law is like a muzzle. You think about a, a vicious attack dog and they put a muzzle on it. That's what God's law does to human depravity. It, it, it muzzles us. Furthermore, God's law is like a mirror. We look into God's law and our hearts are confronted by their own sinfulness. Our hearts are confronted for how we fall short in keeping God's law in thought, word, and deed. That we might turn to Christ and seek forgiveness. God's law is also like a map. It guides us how to walk. Keeps us from sin. It tells us how we're to live a life that glorifies Him. As church officers, we're called to be men of the law, aren't we? We need all three uses of God's law. We need God's law as a muzzle to keep us from, to restrain our hearts from sin that we might not fall into sin. We need God's law to be like a mirror that reveals the sinfulness in our own hearts that we might go to Christ continually and constantly. And we need God's law to be like a map for us. That we might know not only to how to walk personally, but how God calls His church to walk and to live. How should the church's leadership be different from those in the world? The church is to choose the leaders God chooses and to follow the leaders who are led by God. It's often said that those who would be placed to serve in office in the church, they need to have an inner sense that they're called to do this. They need to have a sense that God has called me to serve as an elder or a deacon. They also need the approval of a church court, a session or a presbytery, who sends them through many trials and tribulations, to test their call. But they also need the approval of the church. They need the approval of God's people who calls these men to serve. So this inner testimony, this approval of a church court, and then the approval of a congregation provide such encouragement for a man when he takes the oath of office to serve the church. For he knows this is not something that he has done haphazardly. It's, he knows it's not something he's doing begrudgingly. And he knows it's something that he's equipped for. And he knows it's something that the church desires for him. I was so encouraged by this congregation last week to see the unanimous approval of the two men who are to be ordained today. And Dave and David, 
I pray that those three things provide such encouragement to your hearts as you take this office today. As you are men, the church has chosen to serve among them, and that you are men who are being continually led by God's law. Let's pray.